A desperate surgeon. No sign of the four-year-old. I miss you. We hold great concerns. Cleo was taken. 18 days of asking, where is Cleo? What's your name, sweetheart? As the search for Cleo enters its third week, police call in specialist detectives. The investigation to find little Cleo Smith has taken a sinister turn tonight, with police searching the dark web for any sign of the missing four-year-old. Hi everyone and welcome back. I'm Natalie Bongiolo. Joining us for this episode is mobile communications and surveillance expert Philip Branch, podcast regular Kristen Shorten, Seven News reporter Ben Downey and West reporter Darina Zadverna. So it's now been 16 days since Cleo went missing. Ben and Darina, you both flew into Carnarvon. It's the Sunday the 31st of October. It's Halloween. Darina, what were you expecting when you got to town? I'm not really sure what I was expecting. I do remember driving back from the Great Southern covering a story in Walpole in which an eight-year-old boy, Sol, drowned after wandering off from his family's campsite. And that was about five hours out of Perth. You know, unfortunately, that story had a very tragic ending. And so when I read the media release for, you know, a four-year-old girl missing from a family tent, my stomach did sink a little bit. And I thought, not again, literally such a short time later, another case in the state. And obviously by day 16, the active search had wrapped up. The police investigation was ramping up, but we heard very little about it. Police released very little information. So we were worried about what is going to be the next story. What are we going to put in the paper? How are we going to keep her story in the limelight and in the foresight of the public? And Ben, you were down in Walpole with Dorena, weren't you? Yeah, we were covering the same story. We were kind of like ships in the night passing as I was leaving. Dorena was starting her shift there and by the time I'd gotten back and regrouped as Serena's pointed out the news that Cleo had gone missing had just begun circulating so it wasn't long before I got sent up we missed our flight and had to drive all the way up there but then we did a full week of coverage we returned uh, my colleague Joey Catanzaro did a full week and then he just returned to Baton to me um, and on the 16th when I arrived there with Serena on week three Basically, the moment we landed, we went straight to the Carnarvon Motel, uh, where a lot of the same detectives, including Cameron Blaine, were there, which the journalist, I'm sure I don't have to tell you, but uh, it's like finding gold. It's one of the greatest resources of information there. And they were basically telling us that they were settling in for a very long time, as much as it was a race against the clock, if it was the case was true that she'd wanted off from her tent. They were obviously operating under the circumstances that had been taken. So they'd leased buildings in town. They'd planned to be there for six months. Cameron Blaine, lead detective, he missed his uh, son's graduation and had to display it on a projector in the Carnarvon cop shop to show all the other detectives. So they were telling us very early on, on that the beginning of that week three, to settle in, sort of setting us up for how they were going to keep the story in the minds of the public, because it wasn't just journalists that had a role there to keep the story going, but police obviously wanted to be the front of mind for anyone who was watching the news to see if they'd found anything or saw anything that could have been related to Cleo's appearance, keep in the front of their mind so they could come forward. So basically we'd sat down at the table and started working out a plan to keep the story moving. Wow, six months. That's the first time I'd heard that they were thinking that this could be an investigation that could go for that long. But I guess we have seen cases that have stretched out not just months, but years and decades. So Cam, the lead detective, I actually knew previously. I had covered a murder in Pemberton in a regional town of WA. He was the investigating officer of. So I recognised him straight away when I walked into the pub 
And yeah, he said that he even cancelled his Christmas accommodation, his break, because he thought that it was going to go on well after that. Ben, for you, you had been up there at the start. You were now back on day 16. Did you see a noticeable shift in how locals were coping with the situation and how they were now reacting? Yeah, so what had basically happened is by the time we landed, the message we got from locals was to take care of them. By this stage, uh, Ellie and Jake had done two interviews with the media on camera, but sadly, as is always the case with these scenarios, the rumour mill was well and truly up and running. Uh, A lot of people were speculating, obviously, that they had somehow been involved, obviously incorrectly, we know now, in Cleo's disappearance, and certainly the statistics in a lot of these cases uh, family members often can be involved. So they were under a lot of stress, but it was seemed like the local Carnarvon community was wanting to wrap them in cotton wool and do the best they can to make sure that their welfare was being looked after. The problem was now, though, that a lot of the community who had been involved in the SES response and volunteering to go and help, that effort had obviously begun to wind down. So um, it was more just the police that had flown in across the state. Uh, Task Force Rodeo was more than 100 detectives working on it that had been occupying every bar and every pub and every cafe in the morning and you you saw more police cars and detectives vehicles uh, throughout the town than any other. And we know that by this stage, you know, there was a sense that the investigation had really started to stall. You mentioned that you were both thinking, how are we going to keep the story in the headlines? You bump into the cops that evening. Were they able to tell you anything that they were planning for the next days or how much information would they give you? The following day, essentially, the task force, WA Police in general, uh, was supposed to have a big meeting on that Monday to request more resources to launch another wide search at the blowholes. So this was going to be TRG on motorbikes, you know, choppers, the whole lot. And hopefully by Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, those resources would be shipped up to Carnarvon and that wide search was supposed to have happened on the Wednesday or I think then on the Thursday of that week. It was it was being pushed back, sort of a logistical nightmare. They originally was meant to be the week prior, actually, when Joey was there and then it got pushed back at the new week and, like Dorinda said, eventually it was the Thursday that planned to get everyone up. Kristen, Ellie was clearly anguished at this stage and she is still using her social media to beg for more information. Yeah Nat the posts just continued coming but late on the night of Sunday October 31 so as we've said more than two harrowing weeks since Cleo vanished Ellie posted her longest and probably most desperate plea yet. It was Halloween and as we know that celebration has been growing in popularity here in Australia and it's pretty common now for families with little kids to go trick-or-treating and you know partake in activities related to Halloween. So this holiday had obviously triggered some fresh pain for Ellie and reinforced that you know her daughter was missing and she really should have been with them enjoying this occasion and out trick-or-treating with relatives as they would normally do. So that night Ellie posted that her family missed the four-year-old more than ever. I'll read the whole post for you. Every day is getting harder without my shining bright light. Today she's missed Halloween with her family, her cousins, aunties, uncles, nanas and pop, but most of all her parents and baby sister. She needs us and we need her. She is loved. She is happy. She loves dressing up, whether it be a princess or a doctor. I just want her to come home. I need my baby girl home. Please, I beg you. If you have anyone acting suspicious, please call. If you've seen her, 
please call. If you have any important information, call. And then the Crime Stoppers number. So Driftwood Beauty Lounge in Carnarvon, where Ellie works as an eyebrow and lash technician, they also put up a post asking for people to be vigilant. Be a hero for Cleo, it said. Let's bring this precious girl home. Mm. That post just, you know, just takes your breath away, doesn't it? It's it's gets a lump in your throat. And I know Commissioner Dawson, he was echoing uh, those sentiments when he addressed the media the next day. Every day that goes past uh, is most difficult for Cleo's uh, parents and loved ones. Um, obviously, we share their concern. We'll continue to walk, walk with them. So on day 17, Deputy Police Commissioner Cole Blanche tells us that the police air wing is going to send up more drones. We really need to make a good quality mapping of that area to make sure that we cover every inch. Ben, we know that the campsite and that area is an absolute labyrinth. What's your understanding of what they're angling at now? Yeah, so at this stage, this has been searched already by SES three times. They'd used forces in the mountain division to go and get a different angle at it as well. And they were actually investigating and contacting the AFP at this point to see if they could access any satellite images that had been taken on the night she was taken. And around days prior and after, they were certainly trying to gain access to them yet because of the nature of this scrubland, there's no real landmark. It's just June's scrub and there's a big lighthouse. But apart from that, it's really unintelligible from one part to the next. So by creating the drone and satellite map, it would give them a much better guide of where they were searching and enable them to cross off certain areas rather than the sort of pen and pencil map that they were operating on before. But it also shows you that they, at this stage, really had no lead. What we have to remember is day 17, they still have no suspects. They have no leads. They're no one they're willing to name, at least. And they are pulling out these even more contrived sort of method to search for her because so far like going through rubbish like going through the dark web and, and trying to run her name because nothing so far had turned up any results so it was just the latest angle they were trying to approach this from to try and get something because they really were at this stage had nothing in their hands to work with yeah i find the rubbish situation really interesting and i just want to play uh, some of your report from that night and what could have been missed by cameras might have been left on litter Forensics doing the dirty work, going through 50 cubic metres of collected garbage from Geraldton to Manila. So we're talking a massive stretch there. I mean, that's, what, more than 600 kilometres. What more do you find out about this rubbish? What are they got and what are they sifting through? Yeah, so they used the police recruits, mainly um, doing the dirty work. So they definitely loaded it onto uh, the juniors to do that. I don't think you would have seen Cameron Blaine or Rod Wild. Uh, <laughs> getting putting the gloves on and searching through old milk crates and things like that but it didn't end up turning up anything um or nothing of substance it was basically cigarette butts things out of regular roadside bins and and anything at all uh, that had been discarded they put it into really what looked like an assembly line or a factory floor if you looked at the images and they just had people in hazmat suits with gloves on and everything looking through it trying to find anything a trace anything that could have been discarded or items that they thought may have been used by a camper who might have been at that blowhole's campsite and it might have been discarded. You know, you can think of something, maybe like water campers usually have air guards or they might have fire starters. Things like that, they were obviously sort of high-priority items for people searching, but it was another case where they put all this effort in but hadn't found anything yet. 
Yeah, it feels like they're clutching at straws. And Kristen, we've said before that people are not expecting a positive outcome at this stage. So one of the big companies offers free counselling. Uh, there's now a GoFundMe page accruing money. What do you know about that? Yeah, Nat, so many local Carnarvon businesses generously contributed to the search effort and the investigation that we can't rattle them all off here. But Rio Tinto was among them, offering free mental health support to Carnarvon residents who were struggling in the wake of Cleo's disappearance. Now, Cleo's stepdad, Jake, actually works for the mining giant and they had made two on-site psychologists available to community members. In addition to that, they had also supported search teams by providing food, water, sun protection and it's understood that they also offered one of its chartered flights from Perth just family members and emergency services personnel trying to get to Carnarvon in the early days and like I said there were other local businesses also offering help including printing posters and stickers and t-shirts with details about Cleo to try to encourage people to come forward with information and as we've seen there have been a lot of missing person graphics and artwork done up with Cleo's information and the Crime Stoppers information and the reward money and everything shared on social media, which locals had also made to support the investigation. We know also with this GoFundMe page that it had a lot of money in it. How much money did it get to and where did it go from there? Yeah, now, so just over $87,000 by the time it stopped taking donations. Now, that was set up by 21-year-old Carnarvon man, Bill Kent. He launched that GoFundMe on October 16, the very day Cleo went missing. Wow. From what I understand, Bill Kent is a friend of Ellie and Jake's. He's a young dad from Carnarvon. As I said, just 21 years old. He's also a fishing enthusiast like Jake from looking at his Instagram page. Now, he said that the fundraiser was set up to support the small businesses involved in the search for Cleo and support her parents. So on October 21, about five days after Cleo vanished, he posted an update to the page thanking everyone who had donated for their support. He also responded to questions at that point about how the money being raised would be spent or distributed. He said that the donated funds would cover costs for the assets or small businesses involved in the search and that after those costs had been covered, the rest would go towards Ellie and Jake. Now, by November 1, the page had raised just over 87 grand before it stopped accepting donations. It was on November 1 that Mr Kent announced that the page would no longer accept donations. He posted on the page, it said, Hi guys, we'll no longer be taking any donations to the GoFundMe towards bringing Cleo home. This has been a request made by Ellie and Jake. Please, if you have any questions, just email me and I'll try to get back to you. Thank you all so much for your kindness and generosity and fingers crossed for some good news soon. Thank you to everyone who's been supportive in these times. Bill. Now, it's unknown why Ellie and Jake had asked at the page stop accepting donations. Was it that they knew Cleo's return was imminent? Now, that seems unlikely because mm. by all accounts, as been mentioned before, not even police knew that on November 1. So it seems more likely that the decision to cease donations, it could have been the result of the vicious trolling towards Ellie and Jake that we have talked about in previous episodes at length. Despite detectives clearing Ellie and Jake and Cleo's biological dad, Daniel Staines, down in Perth, of any wrongdoing, they were still the subject of horrific accusations and theories on social media. So I'm just speculating here, but perhaps that was part of what led them to that decision. Ben, police were saying to you that you were potentially looking at they were settling in for the long haul. What were you thinking to yourself? Are you thinking, well, how long will we be here as journalists? You know, how long will we cover this story for? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it felt at the time like we'd certainly be there for at least maybe another month of rotating as we had, sort of one week on, one week off. But the difficulty was is that it seemed like from our conversation that Devere and I had had with the lead detectives when we'd arrived there, that they hadn't actually had that conversation with Jake and Ellie. At that stage, they were saying it's probably likely that she's undergone serious harm and statistically or, or something worse had befallen her. But how do you bring that up with a family that's holding out hope that she's alive? And one of the best things that you can do to help find a child is make sure her parents don't give up hope. We spoke yeah. to an oldest in Scotland Yard and on the Manny McCann case, and they said one of the most crucial things that parents can do is not give up hope. So the detectives found themselves in a conundrum where they had been having to set themselves up for the long haul and then operate on that basis. But at the same time, the conversations they're having with the parents, the most important people in this entire saga besides Cleo, uh, that had to be communicating to them that, you know, a breakthrough could just be around the corner all the while without really having any leads to go on. So if the journalists were thinking, having to scratch their heads a bit, I can only imagine what the police were doing at this stage, but, you know, thankfully they managed to pull up a good result. Yeah, and at the time we were also told that the family was still very much in denial. They were still very much in shock, even having had dozens of conversations with police they still didn't want to accept that that was the reality, that they might not find her, she might not come home. And I can imagine it would have been a really difficult job. Obviously, we know that one of the officers, his sole job was being the family liaison officer. Yeah, I can imagine. And he was actually one of the four detectives that, that found her on the night. So. Yeah. He would have had a really tough role over those couple of weeks. And we also know that police were also pursuing another really awful line of inquiry, another thing they wouldn't necessarily want to have to be speaking to the parents about. Detectives from Task Force Rodia have taken the investigation online, joining forces with the AFP to mine the depths of the dark web. So we know obviously the dark net is a hideous place and it requires specialists to infiltrate it. Ben, what more did you know about that particular part of the search at the time? Yeah, right. So what they've been doing is they obviously know these databases, these forums and hangouts where these people congregate and they have obtained, well, they've, they've used images of Cleo that, that obviously the family had freely given to help find her and they'd been trying to match them with any known predators in the area and any of those places online. Um, I'm sure that the podcast would have covered the fact that there was a quite a significant amount of sexual predators on the register around Carnarvon, but obviously that had turned up no results, and so they had to expand their search into the dark web. Thankfully, though, by the time we'd already learned that they were mining the dark web for information and trying to match Cleo, we'd also just been told the piece of information that they'd come back with no matches, which, you know, is... Good in some senses, because if they had found a match, then heaven forbid what uh, could have been going on. Um, but also it meant that another avenue that very easily could have provided uh, a tangible lead, one that they were still searching for, had actually come back with nothing. So it was good in some respects, poor enough. And we know that those sites, they can be used for drug trafficking, they can be used for terrorists, child exploitation. Darina, what kind of powers do police have to tap into those corners of the net? From the interview I did with Curtin University Internet Studies professor uh, Tamar Lever, he described the dark net as essentially a platform or, or sites which can't be accessed from public browsers like Google and were highly encrypted.
restricted so you'd have to know exactly what to search for to access them. Now police or you know special agents would have infiltrated some of these sites and would have posed as an an anonymous person just to monitor what was happening but from what he said there'd always be other sites that are more encrypted and are more shrouded in secrecy so while police were infiltrating these sites and monitoring them the fact that police didn't find traces of Cleo didn't mean that she wasn't on there. I mean that's the point right it is a really dark part of the web. Mm. Kristen, the other thing police were zeroing in on was the mobile phone towers. How many are there in that area? Yeah, Nat, I reckon this is so fascinating. There were three new mobile base stations rising from that remote and rugged terrain not far from the Blowholes campground. And in what just must have seemed like such a lucky break for detectives who, as Ben said, have had the odds stacked against them in trying to find Cleo. So John Flint and Phoebe Pin wrote an excellent piece for the West just days before Cleo was found about these unremarkable phone masks in the middle of nowhere, which from what we now understand, ultimately possibly played a crucial part in finding her. So one of the Telstra towers is at Point Quabba, just a couple of kilometres from the Blowholes campground. Up until late 2018, when the masks were installed, the stretch of coastline north of the Carnarvon area was a complete dead zone for mobile phone coverage. So despite its remoteness, campers and caravanners at the Blowholes now enjoy better signal than many receiving Carnarvon, 75 kilometres <laughs> south of there. So... For Task Force Rodeo detectives, these modern phone masks were like high-tech informants, providing such useful metadata to help trace potential suspects and witnesses, as well as verify people's statements and check their alibis. So first and foremost, these masks and the data collected from them could help identify people who were in the vicinity of the campsite within that crucial time frame between 1.30 and 6.30 a.m. the morning Cleo vanished. So these could have been individuals who hadn't come forward to police outing themselves as campers who had been there despite all the publicity and public appeals for them to do so. So how this works is like other police forces around the world, WA police would routinely request cell dumps or tower dumps from Telstra and other telcos to help them solve serious crimes. So they would have got a cell dump from these towers and then been able to methodically work through the mobile phones of all of the users who had been in the area in that crucial time frame. Yeah, I mean, they'd be thinking that these phone towers are an absolute stroke of good fortune. Despite having no suspects, detectives have no shortage of evidence, believing it's likely the clue to finding Cleo lies somewhere in the mobile phone logs, the CCTV catalogues, or even the fingerprints they've already collected. Now it's just a matter of finding that needle in the haystack. Philip, can you tell us in general how police use mobile phone towers and mobile data in criminal investigations? Mobile phones are actually very chatty devices. Even when you're not actually using it, there's a lot of communication going on between your mobile phone and the base station. The network as a whole has to know roughly where you are. If there's a call coming to you, it doesn't want to have to route the call to every base station in Australia. It just wants to route it to one or two that you're probably attached to. So to do that, it has to know roughly where you are, which base station you're attached to. That means it has to have some record somewhere in the network, information about your location. That location is metadata. And under the laws that were propagated a few years ago, metadata has to be stored for I think it's about two years. So that information is stored somewhere. 
and that can be very useful for police when they're um, investigating crimes. By law, do telcos have to hand over that metadata if it's requested by police, for instance? Usually there has to be some sort of warrant. There's a judicial oversight, although that has been weakened over the past few years. But the intention is that there is some sort of judicial oversight of it. Probably not as strong as it might be, but in general, they can't just go in there and demand. There has to be some sort of process for them to gain access to it. So so long as your phone is switched on, the towers are collecting this information and is it basically tracking a path? There's a lot of conversation going back and forth between you and the base station and it keeps enough information so that it knows where to route messages to. Now, most base stations have some sort of directional antenna so it knows roughly which direction relative to the base station you are as well. There's information about signal strength and that can give you information about how far away you might be. The data that's collected for the functioning of your phone can provide a track of where you've gone. Yeah, if it's off, then you know the network only knows where you were you know, at the time you switch it off. But if it's on, there's a lot of communication going on between it and the network, including location information. And this data that has been collected, which police might want access to, how intensive is it for them to trawl through that data? I imagine it must be very intensive. I've never had to do it myself, but it must be a lot of work because there's a lot of data. There's so many mobile phones. There's a lot of base stations. This was one of the problems with original proposals for the metadata collection, just the sheer volume of data that would be collected. So finding individual data or tracking individual data is is not a, a trivial exercise, but you know, it's not impossible either, but it's not something that could be done instantly. The evidence that police obtain from these phone masks, they can then also be combined and overlaid with other evidence such as CCTV, call data records and other information. So it can really be a critical tool in narrowing down the suspect pool in Cleo's abduction or any major crime. Ben, you've been there at the start. You're now there on, we're now talking day 18. What's your feeling? What's your sense of how police are tracking at this point? Yeah, well, I mean, it definitely it was a case of desperation prior to her being found. I know that the conversations we were having with detectives by this stage really illustrated that. I mean, they had this enormous workforce, all this manpower, you know, upwards of 100 detectives working on the case. And to illustrate the kind of work they were doing, like, they had created this map of the town using CCTV cameras, and they had basically assigned one detective per camera to go through that camera and catalog each car make model color registration number if they can see it as well which direction is it going does it make multiple appearances on this camera what time is it active and then you've got them entering it into a database with another detective working on the other camera and mapping basically where all these cars are going and if you're casting the net that wide then we felt like i'd have maybe another week here and then i'd hand the baton over and I was preparing to get very friendly with detectives because I was expecting to take them at their word. They weren't just being deliberately effusive about what they were doing. They were being completely open and with us basically saying that they had nothing. And so from our perspective, it was very much a case where we were going to be preparing for some very difficult conversations with the family and actually having to make sure our reporting was going to be reflecting and being extremely sensitive because we had to sort of walk the tightrope similar to how detectives were about saying how long they were here for and saying 
the kind of techniques they were using that obviously showed their level of desperation, but keeping in mind that it was obviously going to be negatively impacting the welfare of Jake and Ellie. If they were watching these report and seeing how what lengths detectives were going to and how little results, at this stage at least, uh, they were returning. Detective Blaine was great in that he said, you know, at this point we're not thinking of why should we release this information, we're thinking why shouldn't we? So they wanted to keep the story in the limelight. And of course, from all that CCTV gathering on that day, it was also revealed that there were actually multiple routes between the blowholes and the Carnarvon town site that could have been taken without being detected by a single camera. So that was worrying news to hear. It's now 18 days since she disappeared from her family's tent, but detectives say they're still not giving up hope of bringing her home. So as another day comes to an end, Cleo's family face another excruciating night. What nobody could have anticipated is what would happen next. A midnight rescue that would be celebrated not only in the town of Carnarvon, but around the world. We got her. We got her. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Bobby. Come here. Come here. I got you, Bobby. What's your name? You're all right. What's your name? What's your name, sweetheart? My name is Cleo. Your name is Cleo. Hello, Cleo. That extraordinary vision captured on police video, it still gives me goosebumps to hear it and to watch it. Darina and Ben, you were there in town. You're going to join us for Episode 8, as will Kristen, when we'll step through those events, massive celebrations and a man taken into custody. We hope you can join us then. For more information on this case, head to thewest.com.au forward slash Cleo.